So good morning, everyone. It's really fun to get introduced at this school. Wow. Um, there are several connections that I have with, uh, with this school. It's, a, it's really a treat to be here. I'll just mention a couple of them. As Brian mentioned, I'm a product of, of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, which has shaped me a great deal spiritually. And uh, that church is, as Brian mentioned, a PCA church. And I'm now at the college, which is the college of my denomination. That makes it very special to be here. Another reason it's special is that our music director at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville is a graduate of Covenant, a guy named Isaac Wardell. And Isaac is a beloved music ministry director at our church. I think if the pastors were called elsewhere, we would all think, oh, this is terrible. But if Isaac left, we would go into mourning. And I told Isaac uh, last Sunday, I said, I'm coming to Covenant. And he told me that when he was a student here, he was, I guess, up on the stage. He was one of the music leaders here. And out of that, he's become not just the music director of our church, but a real pioneer in, uh, in Christian music. And I understand he was just recently on your campus. And the third reason it's special for me to be here is because of Brian, Professor Ficker. We've known each other for many years. You may not be aware of this, but the work he does in economic development is path-breaking work and exceeds in importance that which is done at most every major public research university in the country. He is a real gem, not just because he's been a friend of mine, but a tremendous asset for the kingdom. And I'm so grateful that Covenant College has provided a place for him to flourish in a way that probably most public universities couldn't do. Uh, so for me, this is a special place. It's a treat to be here. Um, I started school probably like most of you when I was five years old. What's different about me is that I never left. I simply switched from being in the back of the room as a student to being up front as a teacher. There are a lot of things that change in the transition from being a student to being a professor, but there's one thing that remains constant in academic life, and that's questions. Questions. So from grade school to high school, students take lots of tests. They answer hundreds upon hundreds of questions. And as you know, as you've experienced, college still has more tests and questions. And even we professors, this might surprise you, we professors get asked questions. When we present the results of our research, people question us about it. But school isn't the only place with lots of questions. The Bible is full of questions as well. Now, you may be surprised to think of it this way. Most people associate the Bible with answers, not questions. But the Bible contains lots of questions, and they're asked not only by people in the Bible, but by God himself. <clears throat> and this chapel talk is about questions in the Bible. And because in American culture, we have this affection for top ten lists, I'm going to call this talk the top ten list of biblical questions. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of you came up with a different top ten, but each of the questions on my top ten is important, certainly more important than any question I would put on an economics exam. Question number one is from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Question mark. Now, 
when a question is asked by the creator of the universe, we can assume the question is rhetorical. That is, some, something else is going on here besides God wondering where Adam wandered off to. God knew exactly where Adam was, but God wanted Adam to respond, to, to really come face to face with the terrible gulf that now lay between them. And God still asks that question of us today. Where are we? Are, are we hiding from God, or do we want to be in his presence? Now, the second question on my top ten list also comes from Genesis. And it's given in response to a second rhetorical question from God. It's one of the most widely quoted questions in the Bible. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain replied. And we can almost picture Cain shrugging his shoulders as he asked this question of God. Am I my brother's keeper? Question mark. Am I my brother's keeper? All of us have asked that question in one form or another as we wonder about our responsibility to someone else. When I travel in an underdeveloped country and observe the poverty experienced by others, this, this question can be a daunting one to consider, even a haunting one. Am I my brother's keeper? Question number three also is from God, and it's recorded for us by the prophet Isaiah. Now listen to this. Then Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Question mark. And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Now this question, Whom shall I send, intrigues me. And it raises another one. How many of us as, who are Christians can say we're Christians because someday we can identify the person who answered the question the way Isaiah did. Somebody said, Lord, here I am. I'll go be your voice to others. Send me. When I consider this question, I think of a handful of people, two in my family, two outside my family, who said, here I am, Lord. I'll tell Ken Elzinga about you. I'd like to think question number four would belong on anybody's list of top ten questions in the Bible. It's raised by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she puts this question to an angel who shows up out of the blue in the middle of the night with the news that Mary is to rejoice that she is blessed and favored among women. Now let me read the lead-in to the question that Mary asked. Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words and wondered what kind of greeting might this be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And now... Consider the question Mary raises in response. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Question mark. Mary's question, how will this be, is wonderful. It, it, it is literally full of wonder. And millions of people for centuries have affirmed the Apostles' Creed that our Lord was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. 
And in a different form, in a different form, this question has been echoed throughout the ages by ordinary people, people who have come out of this college, people who come up against roadblocks and obstacles in their lives, and they turn to God, and instead of saying something is impossible, they ask instead, in faith and in wonder, just how God will do it. How can this be? Question mark. Now, question number five. It's a very odd question. You usually think of one person asking a question, but this question comes from a group of men. They were very wealthy, prominent royalty, and they traveled from a distant land to pay homage to a king, a king who they found as a baby boy, clothed in rags and sleeping in a barn. And they collectively asked what I label as question number five on my top ten. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Question mark. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And as the Christmas carols remind us, this is a question people still ask today. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We want to worship him, for he is worthy of our worship. And centuries later, this one who was born in a manger is still worthy of our worship. Question number six comes up after a part of the Bible that frankly is painful to read. The words are those of the Apostle Paul. And this is what he writes. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Ever feel like that? I know what I should do. I want to do the right thing. But then I do the wrong thing. Paul's torment over what he wants to do and what he actually does gets worse. He goes on to explain, For I do not do the good I want to do, but rather the evil I don't want to do. And this I keep on doing. So what's going on here? Well, Paul tries to explain. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wants to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my body, O wretched man that I am. And then, only after he lays this foundation does Paul ask question number six on my top ten list. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Question mark. Now that question today is as relevant as it was then. It has the same answer. Jesus Christ delivers us from our bondage to sin. The seventh question is the only one in the Bible that um, gets asked not once and not twice, but three times. And Jesus is the questioner. So let me read this to you. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? Question mark. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Question mark. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Question mark. And the Bible says, and this is expected. Peter was hurt 
Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So I wonder how often does Jesus ask this question of me or of you? And if we say, yes, Lord, we love you, what evidence is there as to the depth and reality of our answer? The threefold repetition of this question is very sobering. Jesus wants to get our attention with this question. And now we're up to question number eight. It also was asked by Jesus, and he sets the stage with the story about a Jewish man who was traveling between two villages. When he was robbed, he was mugged, he was left helpless on the side of the road. Do you know or remember what happened next? Two prominent members from the man's own community passed him by. And it isn't that they didn't see him or that they didn't know he'd been injured. They knew. But as we'd say today, they moved on. Then, a man from an enemy race, a Samaritan, came upon the injured man and stopped to help him. Not only caring for his wounds, but according to the Bible, puts him up at an inn. And when Jesus finished telling this story, he asked his listeners this question. It's my question number eight. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Question mark. And from this story and the question Jesus asks, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And from it, we learn something of what Jesus might have thought about the question Cain had raised earlier, am I my brother's keeper? Okay, we're at question number nine on my list of the Bible's top ten. It's a question that shows up in a dream. The dream, or some scholars call it more of a vision, was the Apostle John's. And this vision really makes up the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And John described part of his vision this way. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seven seals. Now these seven seals were devices that secured a document, probably with wax or clay. They, they kept the document from being opened and read. And then this question is asked about that scroll that is literally all sealed up. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Question mark. And after this question is asked, John recounts, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then something very strange happens. Then John began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to John, stop weeping, quit crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then John looks again, and he sees what? Do you remember? Not a lion, but a lamb standing as if slain. So this is very mysterious, very mysterious. What's the answer to the angel's question? My question number nine, who's worthy to break the seven seals? Was it a lion or was it a lamb? Ask yourself this question. Could any two animals be more different than a lion and a lamb. We're comparing the king of the jungle 
with the most helpless of creatures. And then we learn from John that these words were sung about the Lamb of God. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The lion from the tribe of Judah, who was the lamb who was slain, both refer to Jesus. And now we've reached question number 10. This question is really important because it goes to the very heart of who Jesus is. So let me set the stage for it. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, they think you're one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Question mark. Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Well, what's a Messiah? That's what a lot of my students at my university would ask. They would have no idea. What's a Messiah? That could be a whole another talk in itself or maybe a series of talks, but for our purposes, Messiah means the anointed one, one who has been anointed by God. Its Greek counterpart is Christ. So when someone says Jesus Christ, they're saying that Jesus has a title, Christ or Messiah. So Peter responds that Jesus is the person God sent to save people from their sins and be their Lord. The great divide between those of us who are followers of Jesus and our friends who are observant Jews is that Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that a Messiah is yet to come, and they're still waiting. The Christian faith stands for the proposition that the promised Messiah has come to earth. Mary gave birth to him and called him Jesus. And he's the son of God, and Peter believed this. In fact, some Christians believe that when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, Jesus is referring to Peter's answer to my question number 10. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Lord. And in academic signals, Jesus, I think of giving Peter an A-plus for that answer. And it doesn't reflect great inflation. In fact, Jesus tells Peter that he's blessed because of that answer. So there you have it, a top ten list of questions from the Bible. And you might ask yourself, what would have been your grade if you had to answer these questions? That is, how would you have scored? Am I my brother's keeper? Can you identify the Isaiahs in your life who said, I'll tell this person about Jesus? Have you ever thanked them for their willingness to present the gospel to you? Exactly who can deliver us from our selfish, controlling nature, or as Paul put it, our body of death? Would we know Paul's answer to that question? Would we agree with it? Paul thanks God because he knows he's been been delivered through Jesus Christ our Lord. I shall never forget being in a Bible study with a Jewish colleague, and we were studying the book of Romans when it was as though a light went on. My colleague came to realize through Paul's words in the book of Romans why Jesus was so important to me, his Gentile friend. It was through the life and death of Jesus that the righteousness of God had been imputed to me 
his Gentile colleague. Small wonder that Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Nobody made it more transparent. Nobody ever argued so rigorously as to why in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. So in closing, let me go back to that question that Jesus raised, question number 10. Who do you say that Jesus is? The Apostle John tells us that if all were written down about who Jesus is and what he did, libraries could not contain the whole of it. Whole libraries cannot fully describe who Jesus is, who Jesus is and yet perhaps the best answer to the question of who Jesus is is also the shortest one that's ever been written. It sums up the entirety of God's revelation to man from beginning to end, and it's only three words long. Jesus is Lord. If a student at the University of Virginia were to ask me the question, what is God like? You claim to know about God. I could do no better than to respond as did the Apostle Paul. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Who is Jesus? Well, he's that person in whom all of God's character dwells. Love for children? Check. Justice for the oppressed? Check. Mercy for sinners? Check. Holiness, wisdom, power, and authority, they are all there. And then we're told it is God the Father's pleasure that all these characteristics dwell in his son Jesus. So we've gone through the 10 questions. You probably figure this chapel talk is about to end, and you're right. Let me close not with another question, but with three declarative sentences. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. If that's true, no wonder it's important that Jesus be Lord of my life and yours as well. You know, at the University of Virginia, I don't get a chance to pray in front of students very often. Uh, I teach thousands of students in the fall. I never get a chance to pray at the end of a lecture. It's just not appropriate and probably forbidden. But I have a chance to pray for all of you. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, when I look out at the, uh, just the amount of talent, energy, gifts uh, in front of me, I do think, wow, this is really wonderful. And I pray for these students and I pray for this school. Um, I pray that you would take great pleasure in what goes on on this campus as young men and women are instructed in the disciplines and also edified and sanctified in the Christian faith. And I pray for, this, for these students, uh, for their studies, um, for their relationship with you, but I also pray for them as a community that uh, people like myself and my former student, John Tier, that we would come here and be blessed by the singing, uh, by the devotion of this school to the things of Christ. Uh, may that always continue. Please protect and bless this school in its commitment to the gospel. And Father, this day is still young. I pray for these students that as we go into the afternoon, that uh, this remarkable proposition that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. I pray for that in Jesus' name, amen.